So, I get to kick it off. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but I get to do that. We are going into a new series called It's Time. And it's time for a whole lot of things. And if, as, you, as I become more mature, I begin to realize that there's a lot of stuff I still need to do that God has for me to do, and I'm excited about that. But let me take you back a little bit into my life. Um, I always, I'm a storyteller a little bit, so I need you to know me so you get where I'm coming from. Um, when I was about nine years old, two significant things happened in my life. Before I was 10 and a half, I got a brother and a sister. Now, in total, I come from a family of 13 kids. I am the oldest. <laughs> that says a lot right there. That tells you a lot about me right there. And so, but before that, until I was eight, I was an only child. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was great. Honestly, I loved it. Didn't miss anybody because my mom had friends. And for some reason, all of the friends of the family, we all lived in this big apartment complex and there were always boys. I had tons of cousins of boys. I married a man who has seven brothers. So I could handle it. You know, I could handle myself in a situation. He messed with my Tonka truck and it's on, okay? <laughs> So I understood that about myself and was pretty content. One of the other blessings in my life is that I had all these older women in my life. Now, in the African-American community and in some other cultures the same way, your grandmother lives with you, your great-grandmother lives with you, your auntie and everybody, and everybody is close by. And then you belong to the church where they all come to. And not only is your mother wiping your face with her spit, but there's several other women that are going, there's something on your face on Sundays, and they're telling you, baby, Come on now. I remember the first time I sang a solo, I was six. And it was every time I feel the spirit moving in my heart, I would pray. And I cried through the whole song. The tears were bawling. They said, baby, that was when they stood up and they leaned back and closed. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I thought I was all that in the bag of chips, but I knew it was a failure. But that kind of encouragement was something. And then these brothers and sisters come along. That wasn't bad. Somebody said, ooh, she doesn't like it. I did. I loved it because I was by myself a little bit. I developed a really good imagination. I read early and did all those things. So guess what I was going to do? Teach them the same thing. So as you know, two children less than two years old present some real challenges in a family. And we lived in an apartment building, one of which was laundry. Now, I know I look really young. <laughs> be lying to you guys. And, but I grew up in the age where you used a washboard and a wash tub. Anybody remember that? You put the wash, nobody, uh, come on y'all. <laughs> I'm looking at you and some of you look like you're, thank you. Thank you for telling the truth. God will bless you, my sister. <laughs> there, there was a wash tub and a scrub board. And so generally we washed, you know, until you went to the laundromat. We didn't have a washer and dryer. The landlord did, and sometimes we got to use it. But by and large, during the week, you did it on the washboard and you hung it on the line or on the radiator or across the porch. Not uncommon in Chicago with apartment buildings. Well, two babies under two and a half, there's some problems. And so you gotta go to laundromat. So I learned to go to laundromat at nine years old. Put the stuff in the cart, had the, dirt, had the dirty clothes all together and then had clean clothes bags to put them in when it was over, had my soap and everything. And usually you weren't necessarily by yourself. There might've been somebody walking along with you doing the same thing. So we would pull the cart in front and back, we'd dance with the carts, we'd get down the street about three blocks away to the laundromat. Now one thing cool about this laundromat was it was in a block with a Rexall drugs on the corner, 
Mr. G's store here, the Chicago Public Library, and the laundromat was here. That was on Ashland Avenue in Chicago, 67th Street. So the cool thing was I knew that if I got two 10 cent, believe this, 10 cent washers and filled them up, there was time between the washer and the dryer, and guess where I went? To the library. I was an early reader, so I loved it. It got to the point where every time I'd have to wash, the librarians would have a stack of books waiting for me. They were cool. There was two ladies, and you know, they looked like the Donna Reed types and everything. So they would have the, the come, come here, Felicia. And so, you know, and I would have the books, and I would take them between the washer and dryer. And you sit down in the corner where it was warm in the laundromat on a blanket or something, because there was always somebody leaving the blanket, and you read. And I read incessantly. Well, after I did this, these wonderful women even began to teach me the Dewey Decimal System. Anybody remember when that was new? Okay, the Dewey Decimal System, so I could become a librarian at my school. By the time I got to junior high, I was always in the library. So I take my stack of books, I sit down, and one time, the first time they did this, I thought something was wrong with them. They gave me three books. They gave me Moby Dick, they gave me, um, I can't think of the other one. Oh my goodness, it's right here in my notes. They gave me Moby Dick, they gave me uh, a Du Jardin book, they gave me Nancy Drew, and they stuck this book in there called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now you gotta understand, it was supposed to be a classic, and I guess I was supposed to read it because junior high was coming. And they did mostly pretty well with the choices, but that was one of the ones, and Tom Sawyer, that I didn't like. Because when it started out in the chapter, there was this language, this English, and it was broken, and I didn't get that, because again, I came from this household full of singing people and teaching people, and this was poor English. But I didn't like it especially because I'd heard that term used derogatorily. So I read all the other books. I even, because they ran out of books one time, got through Tom Sawyer. But I kept sending that book back. It was written by a woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe. And later on, I did read the cliff notes on it when I was in college. Later on, I did see an old bad movie about it. But I just couldn't bring myself to read the book because of the name. Fast forward 45 plus years, 2011, right before I come to work here, I'm leaving World Vision. I got my last doctoral class. It's in New York, and we're gonna get taught by people the likes of Ray Bakke and Tim Keller and Jim Cimbala at the Brooklyn Tabernacle and Peter Scazzaro, I pronounced his name wrong, talks about the spiritually healthy church. These are gonna be my teachers, right? I'm excited. I look at the syllabus, and we're visiting places. We're going into communities, the LGBT communities. We're, we're learning how people are ministering in those communities. We're learning about all kinds of things, African-American, Latino community. To exegete New York on foot is unbelievable. If you ever get a chance to do it, just using the trains. The system is unbelievable itself, but what you learn about what God was doing in that age was just fascinating to me. Well, about the third day, I looked on the syllabus, and we were going to this place called Plymouth Church. I was okay with that. But then I realized in the lobby was this name, again, called Harriet Beecher Stowe. We're gonna learn about Harriet so much, but her book was there, a picture of there was there. We're gonna learn about her brother, Henry, and their siblings. Now there should be a picture of Henry coming up. And you gotta understand, all I heard was Harriet Beecher Stowe. His name was Henry Ward Beecher, that was a brother. He was one of the most prolific pastors of the time. And 
also one of the most popular and unpopular pastors at the same time. So there's Henry. I learned that when it wasn't popular, that Henry had assessed life, and this was during pre-Civil War slavery days, and decided he had to do something about this. He was fed up with the debate over people that were property. And after he preached his sermons on Sundays, whose congregation often included Abraham Lincoln. So while she's telling me that, she says, as a matter of fact, you're sitting right where Abraham Lincoln sat. So of course I got up and rubbed the seat. <laughs> Thank you, my brother, I said to him. And I sat there. But what Henry would do that broke tradition that made him say it's time to do something different was after service, there was this parlor, beautiful parlor, I got pictures of it. And he would bring slave mothers and their children to this parlor. He would bring the lightest mulatto ones, that ones that had relationships with the, with the masters and so they looked more like you than they did like me with the long flowing hair and he dressed them up beautifully and he'd start to talk and nobody would really notice these kids sitting there. And he would say, well, did you know that this is a slave family? Can you imagine after hearing the word of God preached, having these people sit here that look just like you, maybe, Henry would say, this could be your child. And so the parishioners, whether wealthy or not, would come with money in their pockets and they would buy their freedom because this could be your child. We later were ushered into a brick-lined cave next to the cellar, and I found out it was a station for the Underground Railroad. Y'all know what that is? That was a railroad where when people like Henry did what they did, it's one out here in Wheaton College. Believe it or not, there's some other ones around in Chicago too. They would send these people to their freedom underground. They would go underground, buildings connecting out of that and then out into the nighttime. And if you've heard of Harriet Tubman, they call this an underground railroad. It was constantly moving. So Henry had a place in the basement. Well, I went to the basement, I nearly lost my mind. I picked up dirt. And I think, again, I was probably the only African-American group, and I just sprinkled it all over me. Because I knew somewhere down the line the world was small, and maybe my ancestors had traveled that path. Now, I wasn't mad about anything. I was just glad to be able to touch the ground. Matter of fact, they did it so fast, everybody left for the next room. My professor came back, and I was face down on the ground with tears running down my face. Because I was actually there. Now, so that you know I'm not crazy, I do this every place I go, no. But, I, but, I, but I, did, I did it when I hit the ground in Africa. I went to Rwanda several times, went to several places in Africa, and every time I got to that ground, because basically we don't know who our people are. And so what I noted about this guy was that Henry was a primary master preacher. Now, most guys are not going to risk their reputation doing something like this, do they? When you got it good and you're sitting in a place of power, why would you risk your livelihood, your family's reputation, your siblings, everybody else? You already got a sister that wrote a crazy book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And then you've got other brothers and sisters who are doing the same thing where they were from. It wasn't just, this was something that was in the blood of this family. And one day, I don't know if they had a family meeting and said, okay, it's time to stop this. We can do something about it. We're going to use our voice. We're going to use our power to do something. It's about time to do something. Now, the last year of my life, as I sat there on Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve with my husband, and we talked about what happened all last year. Some of you got our family letters, so you know what's going on. If you don't, I'll make you a copy sometime. But 
we thought about that and we were glad that God had given us more time because there's some things that are still left to do. There's some things that are still left to be said. There's some things that are still left to be unearthed. There's some people we need to get to with the gospel. There's some people that we need to apologize to. We need to fix some family relationships. We need to do a whole lot of stuff. And we're so glad that God gave us time. But he gives us time to do something with it. But isn't this true of us as children of God? We're faced with decisions daily, but it seems that the beginning of each new year affords us a time to start again. How many of you make resolutions? Smart. I don't either, because I know I'm going to break them before I walk out the door. <laughs> I'm going to mess up. I'm going to do something. I'm going to disappoint myself, the people around me, possibly the Lord, too. And so I don't even do that anymore. I just say, I just need to do better, Lord, you know. And then the voice I hear in my head sounds like my mother from Jesus saying, because you know better, now that you know better, you do better. So keep that in your mind. Now that you know better, you're going to do better. So we make these refurbished plans and attempts to fix things, leave habits, constantly keep us in turmoil, arguments about with people that we have over the same things. We make promises about managing our money better. I think everybody does that. We promise to spend more quality time with our spouse and our family. I think everybody does that too. These are good resolutions to try and keep, of course, but sometimes we overthink it. I have come to learn as I have gotten more mature in the Lord that God is not like us. He accepts us just the way we are. He takes us the way we are. He doesn't need a whole lot of aggrandizement around who he is. He just loves us. And when you get that, it changes your life. So I went on to read some more biographical writings about Henry, and on several attempts, I read about him trying to present to Christians and civic leaders what he was doing. He wanted to stop this inhumane and ungodly treatment of people created in the image of God. So he resolved to stop political bantering, to stop all this other stuff and do something. Now, the next slide that's coming up, Henry is saying to everybody in his audience, God asks no man whether he will accept life. That's not a choice. The only choice is now. The only choice to do something about what's going on in your life, what's going on at your job, is right now. There are little victories that we see along the way at work when something's going wrong, and we're able to catch it, we're able to tell somebody, stop. That's not right. The only choice for character is at that moment. At times, God in his provincial plans presents us with situations that he's already equipped us to handle. Oh, God, oh, Lord, please help me with this. He says to me all the time, I gave you this verse 25 years ago, and all you got to do is do what I tell you to do. All you have to do is apply it when it's time to apply it. All you have to do is buck up and know that I am your God. The songs we sang, I am your Lord, and nothing's going to touch you that doesn't first touch me, says Chuck Swindoll. We know that God is concerned about time because all in the scripture it says when it was the appropriate time, in due time, there is a time for. And the verse we're going to look at a little bit today is Ecclesiastes 3, 3b. I say b because it's not in the beginning. It says there's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up. And I want to talk a little bit about a time to tear down and a time to build up. I have been challenged this year 
um, here at Christ Church, partly because of my cancer that happened. And you know what the cancer was? The, tra- the challenge was? The challenge was to let y'all love on me. Remember, I'm the oldest child of 13 kids, and what do I do? Take care of everybody else, right? That's what I do. At home, my husband even thanked me on Christmas Day. Thank you for taking care of everybody. I'm thinking, you're welcome. <laughs> so, so, so I needed to learn that it was time for whatever stuff is going on with Felicia to be laid down and to let the people of God love on me. So it's a time to tear down whatever protectionism, whatever things I have around myself, and I really can't really point to what they are. I just know me that there was something, and I needed to let it go so that God could heal me, so that we could be really friends, and so that I could minister out, and you could minister back to me, and it really got to be fun, y'all. But when I read the passage in its entirety to put it into the sermon, I'd always heard Ecclesiastes 3 was around at somebody's funeral. I don't know about you. There's a time to live and a time to die. And there's this and there's that. You know, and I, I thought, that's so sad because a lot of this is telling us and moving us to action that we need to do something different. So I don't know about you. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But there's some things I'm sure that God wants us to tear down. I just want you to raise your hand in your heart if I say this. Um, my brother suffers from this too. Sometimes he doesn't mind me telling you. It's a time to stop swearing. <laughs> there's a time to stop eating so much. But then there's a time to mend the relationship with the child that you hurt. There's a time to say I'm sorry to your boss, even though you thought what he did was really bad. There's a time to look your spouse in the eyes and say, I'm going to love you with a new love like I've never loved before because I don't know how much time we get together and stick to it. So like Henry, he thought to himself, he weighed the risk, but he did it anyway. So it says here there's a time to heal, and I got written down here from past hurts, from others, decisions that we've regretted, and just flat out getting it wrong, to forgive ourselves because God has already forgiven us. All we need to do is ask him, and we're going to do that in a minute. There's a time to tear down. I don't know about you, but I have some voices in my head, not to mention voices that talk directly to me, that are discouraging and critical. I'm like everybody else. I don't like being criticized, but I can also be pretty critical. Maybe it's time to tear down the defensive walls that those voices helped us build. Similar to what Henry declared as he spoke to this crowd about tearing down the institution of slavery. Then there's a time to build. What I loved about Pastor Henry Beecher was that he didn't just speak against something wretched. He created and provided a vehicle to change it. He created building blocks. He gave people something they could tolerate and do themselves. It was reachable, touchable. It was doable. The same thing is true for us. God has done the same thing for us. See, as a young believer, I understood that Christ's coming was to save me from my personal sin, and that once I did that, I was okay, and I was going to go to heaven and all that stuff. And I knew that if I confessed my sins, that God would forgive me. It took a minute, though, for me to understand something else. It's the most profound part of this Bible passage in the next slide. 
It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, he is a new creation, and it has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The next part said, all this is from God, who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And we just went through this at Christmas, a reminder. Not counting people's sins against them. That was the thing I needed to get. Because I knew that God had sent Jesus to die for me. But then to understand that God is not sitting up in heaven, tis tisking us for stuff that we do wrong. He's already said, it's done, it's finished. I'm not holding this against you. I just want you to recognize what you do, say you're sorry, and get on with it. And that's what we're going to do. God is not holding our sins against us. And I don't know how I sat in church for so long and didn't understand that. Are some of you like that? Maybe the first time you're hearing this, that he is not holding that stuff against you. When I was 12, some traditions in, in some neighborhoods said at 12, because what Jesus did when he was in the temple, that you took on sins for yourself. And the day you were 12, you were going to do that. Well, when I turned 12, I slept in a bunk bed. So I started hashtagging, I'm not hashtagging, uh, uh, counting every time I did something wrong. I told a lie, check, check, check. By the time my 12th birthday was over, the wall had that much space in it. I was doomed. I just couldn't do the right thing. But once I understood that, I was good. It was that highlighted part that when I failed God, God wasn't standing there with his arms crossed, tissing me like I told you, saying, oh, God, you're wrong. And once I understood who I was in Christ, that I was forgiven, I could be forgiven, then I went on with life in a different way. Now I'm going to quote somebody that is not a biblical scholar, but then maybe she is. She says, find out who you are and do it on purpose. By Dolly Parton. When I got a hold of this in my own way, understood who I was, understood I didn't have to be anybody else than who I was, and it was okay with God, and that God made me this way, and he likes me this way, even when I don't like myself, and that he's not holding my sins against me, I can move on. I could start to plan to do things, fail, be okay with failing, forgive myself because God forgive me when I ask, and then live life on purpose. So there's a time to build again, and much like Henry, we must accept this new life, of course, to be Christians, but also this new understanding that God is not holding this stuff against us. Communion is a time to build again and to take opportunity to ask and accept God's forgiveness. There's the verses that they're going to talk about. You've heard this before, but I'm going to read it, and I think we should read it together if we can. Let's go together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you proclaim 
his love and acceptance of you as well at the same time. So as we start this year, it's a new time to invite God back into your life, to take God seriously, to honor commitments, and to get a fresh start. Now, I told you that I grew up in this family of these women and these strong, they were self-evolved women. Nobody had to tell them who they were. And one of the things they did for us when we started out the door in the morning, apart from give us a tablespoon of cod liver oil, which if it spilled on your dress could be bad for a whole day. But one of the things they did, they prayed over us and they sang over us. And as we start this year, I'm going to sing this prayer before we take communion. And you're just going to close your eyes and you pretend you're nine years old and you're going to school. And one of these women with the rough hands with the scrub boards and the things that they used to wash laundry is singing over you. And one of them, my Aunt Norma would sing, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Mold me, make me, feel me, use me, Spirit of the living God.